Warning, what you are about to hear can only be classified as real talk. This podcast is not intended for the faint of heart or the status quo keepers. Schools are big places, and regardless of what you do, you know just how real things can get at times. In this space, we will talk about real people, real schools, and real situations, so you know just what to do when things get real. It's Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. Welcome to the first edition of Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. This is Jeannie Spiller. I'm here with Matt Treadway. We're here to talk about conversations that really matter in a way that includes real talk. We're not going to hold back. We're going to hit some of those really tough issues and have some real conversations about what's happening in education. Matt, why don't you tell everybody how this crazy idea of a podcast got started? Yeah, it is a pretty interesting story, Jeannie. Um, and, and, you know, we've, we've done quite a bit of work together over the last year uh, to two years. Last year, we were in Arkansas working in a school together. And one of the things that we both just kind of found ourselves talking about was how much fluff there is uh, within the, the realm of public education. And uh, we both find ourselves being very frustrated with that. And, and just through that conversation, Jeannie, I remember you looked over at me and you said, we should do a podcast together. And at first that was a little scary because I've never done anything like that. But the more that we talked about it, the more comfortable I think we both got with the idea uh, because we can come to folks in a medium that will allow us to talk straight to the point, uh, remove the fluff and, and really address some of the biggest issues that face us within our within our roles in public ed. And so uh, what what I think is so exciting about this particular podcast is that, Jeannie, we, we have very different perspectives from one another. Uh, tell, tell our audience kind of your background and then I'll share mine. Sure. So I actually was a middle school teacher for 13 years. So I started my career as a teacher in the classroom and then moved to a middle school assistant principal position. And now I've been in the central office um, at Kildeer Countryside School District 96 in Buffalo Grove, Illinois, for about 20 years. And I'm actually retiring in October. So um, I will be ending a, a 20 years in the district office very soon. But I'm excited for um, everything I've learned um, through all of the things I've done in education, including my work with Solution Tree, and totally excited about the opportunity to just talk about what really matters in education with you, Matt. And, and you know, I've got to say, um, I, I'm, I'm extremely excited to be working with you, Jeannie. Um, I was reading your books and, and, and watching you speak well before you knew who Matt Treadway was. So for <laughs> me to be doing this podcast with you, I got to be honest. It's surreal, but it is a real honor for me. Um, my background, I guess, in some ways is similar to you. I taught middle school as well. Um, but then I made the journey south to the land of elementary, uh, where I became an assistant principal. Uh, and then just after a short time there, I uh, became principal. And that's where I've been for the last six years up until this summer, um, have been serving as the principal at Freedom Elementary School I always kind of joke, I'm a recently divorced principal, not from my <laughs> wife, but from my school. Uh, but instead of one of those messy divorces, this one's been kind of a smooth one. Uh, sad by, but to be walking away from family, but exciting to be walking towards um, an opportunity with Solution Tree uh, to work with schools across the entire country. 
and also allow me to, to spend more time doing this kind of thing, you know, speaking uh, on podcasts and hopefully writing here soon. Um, it, it's, it's super exciting. I think from my background as an elementary principal, though, just a practitioner within the school, uh, that background coupled with your background from the central office will offer two distinct perspectives that I think all of our listeners will be able to connect to for sure. Week one, we are not going to tackle any softballs. Um, we, we are going to jump straight into one of the biggest issues that are facing schools today, uh, and that is the issue of equity. Uh, that's a big word, Jeannie, that we throw around a lot. And today mm-hmm. we're going to dig into that in a very real way. There are very few things that frustrate me more than false advertising. We've all been there too. Picture this, you're driving down the road, you look up and you see a sign advertising the most delicious looking burger you have ever seen. Gosh, it's thick and has the freshest leaf of lettuce and tomato slice you could possibly imagine. And the bun looks like it was just pulled from the hot oven. You're in love with the burger. And you decide at that very moment you have to have it. You weren't even hungry before, but within two seconds of looking at that delicious billboard, a sudden hunger sweeps over you, and you now have a destiny with the exact burger pictured on the sign. You know how this goes, right? Reality is about to set in in a major way. You show up with all of the expectation and anticipation of the mental image you now have in your head. But when the meal finally comes out, letdown consumes you. The burger that eliminated the billboard on the road was somehow morphed into a patty that a nice deli-sliced ham would rival in thickness. The lettuce and tomato that appeared to come straight from the garden, they look like they've seen some stuff in their day. And the bun that was supposed to be fresh out of the oven is maybe a day or two away from expiration. Major letdown, right? That's what false advertisements can do to you. And you know, I think about that quite often in the world of education. Buzzwords come and go frequently in our field. At the school and district level, we love to use those exact words in our rhetoric too. Rightfully so, one of those words that has gained serious traction over the course of the past several years is equity. Equity shows up in conversation on school and district mission and vision statements and in our professional development sessions. I would imagine that if you took a poll of every teacher in the United States, close to 100% of them would agree that equity is important. It's a concept that's hard to disagree with, right? Yet if you asked every one of them to define equity and provide an example of it in practice, you would likely find drastically different responses. Perhaps that's why our usage of the word equity often appears more like false advertisement than an honest attempt to ensure high levels of learning for all students. It's not from a lack of sincerity in how we feel about our students. We love them. That's what makes our profession so noble. Perhaps it's from a lack of clarity on what equity actually means. Maybe even more importantly, it's from a lack of understanding of how to take a concept in theory and put it into practice. Regardless, until our behaviors align with our espoused belief in equity, it will remain an idea rather than an action that can transform student outcomes. That's what today's show is all about. We will dive into the concept of equity. We will examine it, define it, and talk to some experts that have taken this idea and mobilized their organizations to action. Matt, I love the visual of the beautiful burger and then the disappointment or that major letdown of the actual burger. 
as similar to how it feels when we talk about, learn about, and define equity in education. I think it's the perfect analogy uh, because most of us espouse our passion for equitable practices, but it seems really difficult to define and actually put it into practice. It reminds me of the saying that Becky DeFore used to say, clarity precedes competence. We must get clear about what we mean by equity, stop just talking about it and actually start to align our practices. I'm so excited to talk about this topic with Ken Williams. Um, his recent book, Ruthless Equity, um, gives us some really great answers to those questions. What do we actually mean by this? What does it look like when we are living equitable practices in our schools? I can't wait for everybody to hear uh, from Ken about that. There's no question, Jeannie, and, and we both kind of engaged in a book study together. We read Ken's book at the same exact time. We spent a lot of time texting one another throughout that process, just mind-blown emojis constantly going back and forth between the two of us. Ken does like an, ex, you know, an expert job of, of really removing the blabber and jargon that we typically associate with equity. He doesn't bloviate at all. He takes that word equity, gives it simple and actionable meaning that every educator, regardless of position, I think can take back uh, to their classroom or to their position and do something with. But Jeannie, I've got to be honest, I'm just as excited about our conversation with Dr. Lavise Haney of Stevenson High School. He is a current practitioner and just recently uh, became the uh, became the director of equity, diversity, and inclusion for his school district. His perspective on this term, I think, is going to be important because it's not just from a theoretical standpoint, but from a practical standpoint as somebody that's trying to make this come to life for his school district. I agree, Matt. I'm looking forward to hearing from both of our guests. And let's just go ahead and get started with our conversation with Ken. I am so excited to introduce um, the guests that we have today, uh, the one and only, the man, the myth, the legend, uh, Ken Williams, who's going to uh, talk with us today about his book, Ruthless Equity. But before we talk to Ken, I just want to tell you a little bit about what I know about Ken. And I can tell you that this is a man who says it like it is every single time you talk to him. Um, our podcast is all about straight talk, and there is nobody better to have on our first podcast um, session than Ken Williams, because he does. He tells us exactly like it is in terms that everyone can understand. Um, and I can't tell you how many times while I was reading Ruthless Equity that I had to stop, um, either call Matt or text <laughs> Um, anyone who would listen to me about the words that Ken was writing, because for the first time, I was able to understand equity um, in a way that I never had before. Um, Ken cuts through the esoteric discussion that sends us in strange places around equity um, and gets down to what it's really all about. So um, I am thrilled, Ken, that you've joined us for this session today, and I'm hoping that maybe you can start by telling us just a little bit about yourself. We would love to hear 
about Ken Williams. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. That was an introduction. Jeez, you had me looking around like, who is she introducing? This well, is I mean, you know, fantastic. you've taught me to say it like it is. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I'm a, you know, I'm a former classroom teacher, assistant principal and school principal. I've been at this work for 30 years and I, you know, I, I revere educators. I revere education. Uh, I love this country, warts and all, because it's one of the uh, handful of places on earth where you can completely change your family tree and change your legacy. And by and large, it's done through education. And so um, I am a, I'm a present product of a couple of teachers who saw past my circumstances and spoke it into me. And all I'm trying to do these days is just pay it forward. Well, I think you're doing a really good job of that. And I hope that you continue to do that for a long time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for everything that you are giving us as educators. Thank we you. appreciate thank you. About that book, too. I, I'm really proud of it. And um, I think I post about it just about every day. And, you know, there's a little, we all have gremlins, right? So there's a, there's a gremlin in my life who's just like, you're, you're saying it too much, you're bragging, it, it looks bad. But I just believe if you've got something that everyone needs to hear, you've got to be unabashed about it letting folks know so. well and i think you're doing like i said you're doing that in my mind you have helped me and a lot of other people i know really understand some of the issues in education that are happening so thank you for that thank you well and i want to really get into the book and talk a little bit about um, some specific things within the book but i have to say i was struck by the foreword um and Anthony Muhammad saying right from the beginning, um, this is a book for the tired. I mean, I thought that's, that's how he opens the forward. That's what you read when you first open the pages of the book. Um, why do you think he says this, Ken? What's that all about? Listen, I before I even started to analyze what he said, when he sent me that forward, I pulled the book out of editing and went through it one more time because I. I've read four forwards in my life. Now, since he wrote that, I, I read every forward. And, um, you know, Anthony's one of my great friends, and he's a treasured mentor. And from the first word he spoke to me more than, you know, 15 years ago, it's just shot straight. And we are tired. <laughs> you know, we're, we're tired of the same quote-unquote, five subgroups underperforming at epic levels no matter where you go in the country. And the sad thing is, and I think it's going to be my next book, the sad thing is we've not only just come to expect it, by and large, it's almost become normal. And I think it's really scary that like, we don't reflect the way we should. And I think part of it is the systems that we're wrapped up in. We're wrapped up in a system that um, homogenizes groups of kids. And so folks are working hard trying to change the the results of these groups, these so-called groups, but they're never going to happen as long as we see them as groups and not as individuals. And I'm tired of that. 
I'm tired of seeing those kids as broken because that's what it's become now, right? Um, we we want to say, oh, it's the kids identified with special needs and the poor white kids and poor black kids. Like we say that to make ourselves sleep easier. But I've been, you know, I think Anthony's communicating eloquently what I say in very raw terms, which is, I really believe subconsciously we just don't believe they're going to improve. I think that's, I've come to the conclusion that that's why teachers, they don't struggle sharing their data across the table. I think deep, deep, deep down in our subconscious, it's like, you know, you know how the data going to shake out anyway. What are we doing? What are we doing this for? <laughs> like, we know it's, we know it's going to shake out in the end, baby. What you got me comparing the structural practices for? With these same little poor white heathens and poor black heathens, that they all going to, and the, and the thing is, the data shakes out. That's the scary thing. And I've come to the conclusion is that we're teaching subgroups and we're not teaching kids. And um, I know I'm way off of, of what you said, but, you know, like you and Matt, Anthony and I have been doing the same work. I think I'm great at boiling down initiatives to its simplest form. And when I still... We still can't get some schools to move on it. It just makes me wonder. And I really honestly believe it's because deep, deep down, we really don't think these kids are going to make it. And then when we have exceptions like you and your co-authors, yes, we can. And I tell people, I was like, these folks have kids with the, they got the stink of an IEP on them. And they got them outperforming the majority in some areas. But y'all are seen as heroes. Like we make movies out of you. But no one, no one looks at your example and says that can apply here because we're conditioned to mitigate right away. No, notice what happens. Matt comes on and says, hey, our school has shown growth in all these areas. All of our groups are, you know, progressing and achieving. What's the first thing we ask Matt? What's your population look like? What's your kids look like? How many black kids you got? You said 17. We got 19. It ain't going to work at our school. We mitigate right away and we don't realize just how much that reveals our crisis and confidence it's it borders on self-loathing like we dismiss the practices that he and his staff implemented we can't wait to figure out what the difference is doug reeves talked about this doug reeves and i've become great friends he he talked about this years ago he, remember the 99 and 90 schools yeah yeah 90 percent poverty 90 percent mm -hmm. right Minority, 90% so-called minority and 90% plus achievement. Every time you went around talking about another school, they're like, show me another one. Okay, show me another one. <laughs> oh, okay, okay, show me another one. It was just like, how many damn schools you need to see to know? Because <laughs> we focus on kids and not practice. And that's why I'm a nut about start with the crown. And I think Anthony knows that. And we've been at this so long. I just try to, I just keep trying to figure out why it it seems so tough to to embed this stuff because it's it's simple to understand so it sounds like you're saying first we have to believe that all kids are capable and truly believe it and then live it in the way that we approach school yeah i don't know i don't know if i believe beliefs follow behaviors okay so I don't think everyone has to believe it. I think everyone has to behave, right? So we execute 
best practice. We start with essentials, which is the bedrock. Once you get past belonging and inclusion, which to me are like the spiritual elements of equity, like when you get down to the nuts and bolts, essential learning outcomes, that's the bedrock of equity. Mm -hmm. You got to have an essential outcome to have any, you can't do equity without essentials, right? And so we got this process where we say, focus on the essentials. And we know that if, if teams of teachers engage with the teaching, learning, and assessment cycle, figure out the mindset part along with the mission and the practice of this work, they're going to get better results. And then those better results will change their attitudes. But we can't get to the practice because we keep defaulting to kids. I think that's the, I think the larger problem is that we keep group, we, we keep talking about these damn subgroups. Do you know what happens as soon, as soon, I told my wife this, you know when I know I'm on to something? When my wife cringes, she's a great educator. When she cringes and tries to soften the language, I know I'm on to something. Like, she's my litmus test. Here's what I believe. And I'm, this is what I'm going to write about next. I can't wait. I'm telling you, this is it. Let me tell you something. It is all related to ruthless equity. Because I, I touch on it in the book. I talk about marginalizing labels. Subgroups have a stink. Subgroups put a stink on kids right away. As soon, as soon as we group kids for anything other than a standard, they're dead. And I'm convinced that's why the same five so-called subgroups underperform. They're dead. Because what happens is we put that stink on them. And then that stink removes us from the mirror and sends us to the window. So I was on I was I was on a Zoom call with the principal who inspired me to get, become consumed about because I know he's about the right work and he was like, Hey, I need you got something that can help our black boys, like our black boys. And I was like, Andy, if you ask if you asking this question, baby, I know we got an issue. Let's talk. And the first thing I asked him is and I've done this in audience. I show I have a picture of five black boys on the screen. And I said, these are five of your black boys from your school. Tell me what they have in common. And my audience will look. And it gets awkward. And then we come up with the obvious answer. They all have melanin. They have different shades of brown skin. What else? Nothing else. Potentially not. I don't care if they all come out the same Section 8 complex in your neighborhood. When we, when we subgroup kids, we now assume that they have the same weaknesses. They got the same trauma. They got the same problems. They're all dumb in the same ways. We don't ever look for what their strengths are. And that's the first order of business for us as teachers and educators is to figure out what kids do well first. So as soon as we homogenize them, then we start looking for tools. See, subgroups almost imply, no, almost imply, subgroups imply that you're Tier one instruction is on point. It's working for most kids. What's wrong with these little bastards? That's what it's asking. And I don't care whether it's poor black kids, poor white boys, IEP, Latino kids. It's the same stink. And the stink removes us from the mirror. You know what I asked my audience the other day? I was in Idaho. I said, uh, hey, uh, pretend I'm a fourth grade teacher. I'm the fourth grade team leader. I'm here telling you we got 37 white girls that ain't achieving. 37 white girls struggling at our grade level. 
who's got some tips for me? And I just stood there and waited and waited <laughs> and waited and waited. And a teacher in the back of the room raised her hand and said, what are their individual needs? And I said, exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm glad. The, the only time we subgroup white girls, we don't know some. Is when we were concerned they weren't doing enough mathematics, engineering, and science. And then we created STEM, and now they whooping everybody's ass all <laughs> over the nation. Out, you see what I'm saying? It's all about intention. Yeah. But with subgroups, we just homogenize everybody. Not only do we homogenize them, see, when those same five black boys, we stop and say, okay, that one, that kid's struggling with mixed fractions. Then we're back in the mirror. Then we're figuring out what I need to change about those mixed fractions. But as soon as we decide they're poor, or they're black, or our population is changing, or they don't speak the king's English, they're dead. And we're absolved of responsibility. And all we do for the rest of the year is a bunch of hand-wringing, forming groups. What do you call it? it the one principal talked about a task force to address the issues of black boys. Well, should tell me, what are the issues? Are you telling me they're all the same? If the three of us came up poor, are you telling me that we we all get thrown into a pot? I said one boy could come from a two-parent household. Another one could be raised by his grandmother. Another one, right, come from upper middle class. But we just, it's the same thing with special needs, right? If, 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 if having a sense of direction had an IEP attached to it, I'd have it. <laughs> because I have no sense of direction on a medical level. Like a I'm med- with you. A, a, a medical. But I asked some special special teachers the other day. I said, how mild can it get? And they were saying, look, you could have a kid with fine motor skill issues but trouble tying their shoe. Right. Up to severe and profound. And we throw them all in one pot of stew and just, they're all we put the stink of the IP on them and it's done. Mm-hmm. And so I was talking to this principal and he was like, I got my teachers focused on our zone one kids and our level one kids and then our title kids. I said, stop focusing on those labels. Because you telling me, first of all, you know I hate that word low, but you telling me all the kids, I got this video called Struggling Learner and here's how it goes. <laughs> if you called me, if I was eight years old with my 54 year old brain, and you called me a struggling learner, my first thought would be, do I suck at everything? See, labels, subgroups absolve us from surgically looking at what kids know and don't know. But then we do a bunch of hand-wringing, a bunch of grants, a bunch of, well, what else we gonna do with them? Well, let's buy a book on how to to teach poor kids and all that bullshit BS. (laughs) It's all right. This is how black boys get taught. Get out of here with that. <laughs> the PG-13 podcast, so we're in good shape. I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry. No, you're good. You're no, good. No, saying it's, it's, and my wife is telling me, and I know it's true, this thing is systemic. Like every report you get back at schools has your sub-paps and your subgroups and your sub-this and sub-that. And, and I don't have the patience to try to dismantle all that, so I'm going to try to do it from the ground up. But I'm telling you, as soon as you group kids around anything outside of standard, they're dead. Yeah. They're done. And that that's what leads, equity is about. That kind of leads into the second question too, Ken. And and I tweeted tweeted at you the other day 
you know, if you have not bought Ken's book, Ruthless Equity, first of all, you need to go buy it. It is incredible. And, you know, Ken's book is written in a way you feel like you're having a conversation with him, which is incredible. And that's a that's a gift, uh, I think. Uh, And it's an easy read for that reason. But you said something in the book that I tweeted at you because it was so profound uh, that I want you just to kind of expand on for our listeners. You said you can't have a culture of learning for all while some students receive below grade level instruction all year long. Your students know when you believe they're dumb without you ever saying it. All day, that, that really struck me, Ken, and I, I just love you to elaborate on that a little bit. All day. You getting, you getting what I wrote and you, you getting some of my very recent things that I'm just consumed with. First of all, all the damn hubbub and all the talk about SEL and trauma-informed this addresses everything that kids don't get from home. But has anybody addressed the fact that when we put kids in dumb groups all year long, is that is that not the opposite of SEL? That's right. And call it the purple group or whatever group you Listen, call it, but it's the same thing. I'm still torturing my cousin. We were in first grade together, and she got to get up and go work on book B, a phonics book. And I was like, can I go work on book B? They're like, no, your SRA scores. I'm still traumatized by instances where I wanted to strive for more. And teachers are like, no, you keep your dumb ass right here. I'm telling you, there's no way to achieve equity if kids are being taught below grade level all year long. Bubble wrapping kids, you know, I've been asking my audiences lately. I tell people, hey, do the math of your life. Do the simple addition of your life. And raise your hand if you got no business being in this room today <laughs> anybody sign for me and then hands start going up and then i say brother uh are you here because someone bubble wrapped you because someone pobrecitoed you bless your hearted you relegated you to dumb groups maybe a few teachers tried to but there are a handful that did right now i'm telling you it's we on the one hand have made carol dweck the author of mindset Growth mindset, fixed mindset. We made her a millionaire six times over. We had her keynotes correcting her. Yeah, I'm on page 63. There's a graph. Uh-uh, girl, it's page 62. Like, we know her work better than she does. We got growth mindset posters everywhere. And yet, we still we still lean into ability groups. Ken, do you think there's, do you think at all the reason is or or we say the reason is because we love our kids. We don't want to see them struggle. And so productive struggle is just something we take away from them instead of lead them toward and guide them through. That's a part of it. It's definitely what I call the difference between charity work and advocacy work. See, to me, if a student's behind, and it's just my upbringing. Like, I was born behind the eight ball. And I'm not one of these cats that walks around with a target on his back and feels like everybody's out to get me. But I just know, like, I love our country, but I also know that, you know, there have been inequities. Mm-hmm. And so when I've been behind on anything, my parents, my support systems, and two of my teachers in my career saw that as an urgent. They never saw that as slow down. They kept it real. Sometimes you're going to walk in a room with Matt and for 
all the wrong reasons, you're going to have to have more qualifications than Matt to be on an even playing field. That's the way it is. Now get out there and get after it. Mm-hmm. I think, I think a part of us, I think a part of us still buys into the innate ability paradigm to, um, what's it called? The bell shaped curse. Even though I love that we, you call it the curse. I love mm-hmm. that you call it that. Right. Thank yeah. you. Even though we make it, even though we got growth mindset posters all over the damn school. And I think a part of us mixes up. We confuse, uh, urgency with pity, empathy, mm-hmm. empathy. And we start feeling sorry for kids and stuff. And so what I've been telling folks lately is, look, there are days, man, I'd rather deal with racism. Like, at least racism is clear, right? Women in blue tops can't learn, right? I can see that. It's not going to be fun to deal with it, but I can get my head around that. But misplaced sympathy, which is what I call it, where we just, poor baby, I want they're already struggling hard enough. I tell people, you know, that sneaks in the room like carbon monoxide. You can't even smell it. But before you know it, it has choked you out. You're not doing kids a favor. But the thing is, it looks good because it's wrapped up in hugs and squeezes and it smells like cotton candy, but it's not love. You're not serving kids. You're creating victims. You're creating a generation of folks who are going to feel entitled. Watch Judge Judy for two episodes. You see able-bodied people going from unemployment to uh, stimmy checks to uh, slip and fall uh, lawsuits to welfare and then start the cycle again. This is what we're producing because we're feeling sorry for the kids. Let it spark urgency. Exactly. Build those relationships and yank their behinds where they need to go. Mm-hmm. And so we need to change the way we approach our work with all students and and have high expectations for all. But what are the I know you give them in Ruthless Equity, you tell us, like, here's what we need to do differently. What would you say is the number one thing we need to do differently to stop that from happening? Everything you just described. Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. So if I had to boil it down to one thing. Oh, it doesn't. It can be two. Work together. Look, listen, first, first folks got to feel like they belong. If folks don't belong, if we're looking past them, because that's another thing. We... You know, I'm not one of those people that demonizes wealth. I don't demonize when people build businesses and do great things that they get paid lots of money to do. I don't demonize any of that. But if we're not careful, it does set us up to where, much like social media, my life is better because it, because I'm I'm looking at Matt's life and he's had, he's got it worse than me. So now I I feel better about myself. And I think a part of, you know, why we look at those kids and just feel like, oh, babies, is is that little piece of it, right? That, that, that That's a form of othering. But if you want to get down to, like, nuts and bolts, it start with the crown. It's, it, is, it is that simple to understand that you can start with one or two things. I can either start with the kids, who they are, what they look like. Because you know what happens? As soon as they walk in, you got the folder with your 20 kids. And then you got the list of 15 things wrong with every kid by subtracting. Well, you see where Matt's from. Well, we can't, well, you know, Matt's from that side of town. Oh, hell, you had the brother. We know that whole family. Matt's the third one of them trampways that came in. You know, we start, <laughs> oh my God, and he got an IEP? Oh, he doesn't have an IEP? Oh, he, he got a bestowed one. 
that's when the paperwork didn't go through. And we just put one on them like that. We just say, Matt, you got one right now. I'm going to put my D roll on my eye. Anyway, we start doing all the math. And before school even starts, I've got 10 reasons why Matt's not going to achieve a grade level or better. As opposed to when we start with the crown. If we decide every fourth grader has got to walk out knowing how to make this slide presenter, this becomes the crown. And I take teachers and leaders through an activity where I put them in the same kind of situation. It's called the Starbucks activity. And what they prove every single time is that life doesn't level down. Because when I say you got this barista with an IEP, needs to know how to make this caramel macchiato, all they do is build bridges and scaffolds to the, to the standard. Build bridges and scaffolds to the standard. But you got to start with the crown. See, when you start with the kid, you now have the burden of trying to figure out who can and who can't, which is not our work. Our work is every fourth grade has got to know how to make this. So I don't care who Matt is, what his background is, all that is context. If Matt's not getting support at home, I need to give him a head start at school. Right? If, if, if Matt's coming to school with, with some holes in his game, we need to fill those holes. All in the service of this. But then the next level is, this is what everybody's got to get. And when you focus on this, this work is the heart, the head, and the hands. In our hearts, we want everybody to learn at high levels. In our heads, you got to start with the crown. But then you got to do that work. So this is what everybody's got to get. This is the next level remote. It's got to be available to all kids as well. Some kids will get it, some kids won't. This is where kids separate themselves. Everybody's got to get this one. Some kids get this one. And then there's the super advanced remote. This, this is how you bring gifted education that Brian Butler talks about to the floor of every classroom. All three of these levels are available. All three of these remotes. But this is the one we've deemed essential. And once something is essential, there is no can they or can't they. There's only how will we get them there. And if we get enough leaders to help our teachers understand that, we will change everything. Because once the human being puts their back, once we put our backs to the wall, I'm not a researcher. I just know stuff, man. <laughs> we put our backs to the wall and decide the only way out is that way. We are at our best. There's nothing. There's no species better. But we, but we don't do that enough. You know, I just. And that's mission driven work. Right. So before before we jumped on here, I'm doing this video that I'm going to use as like a, a freebie, a free training. And one of the things I talk about is like the three shifts you got to make. And the first shift is you got to understand mission. You got to understand mission, not your mission statement. Mission. And it, so I come up with some characteristics. I said, one, you got to understand that mission and logic cannot coexist. That's why it's mission. See, as educators, we want everything to add up. And I get that. I worked with a school the other day. I can't remember where it was, but they had like seven examples of mission statements on the wall. And they already, I didn't lead them through that stuff. I just got there and they were like, look at our statements. They said, we read your book and it's changing what we do. I said, well, let me take a look here. They had teachers go around and put dots on the ones that resonated with them most. Well, all of them had like eight, nine dots. And there was one little raggedy statement that had one and a half dots on it. And I just looked at them. I looked at all these statements. And I said, I'm curious about the one that only has two dots. Everyone's got 10, uh, 7, 8, 12. One got two dots. 
Well, the one with two dots had this. We commit to continuous improvement in the service of ensuring high levels of learning for every student. That was they, it. They couldn't wrap their mind around ensuring. It scared. It made them all pee a little bit. It's that's scared. <laughs> and that's what mission is supposed to do. Mission should make your bottom half tighten up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then and then your competitive spirit kicks in and you're like, we are going for it. The rest of the statements were nice. They were nicely written, but they have what I call hedging language. We will strive to provide opportunity. We will work to provide students with chances to. We will. So I kept asking, take this one, reverse engineer it. When you accomplish your mission, what have you done? And they said, strive. I was like, does strive get you out of bed? Does strive light a fire under your behind? Does strive make you feel like you've locked arms with everybody? Nope. Strive is an out. Um, we, along with parents, staff, community, the people who work with Furniture House and Kentucky Fried Chicken, and all target peers, make a commitment to it. Like, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. What we've done, yeah. we move from the mirror to the window. Exactly. If the parents don't come through, and if Target doesn't come through, Right. I said the reason your that one statement only has two dots on it. That's your that's mission right there. I because listen, I'm not even part of your school. That mission scares me, and I love it. That's mission kicks in when the math stops working. I've been in those conversations, Ken. I've been helping schools write their mission, and they will not use words that will hold them accountable. Then let's then let's stop wasting time. Let's take a two hour lunch. That's yeah. what I'm gonna tell folks from now on. Let's stop wasting time. <laughs> it's not mission. See, when I ask them, when you've been on a mission outside of work, outside of school, because ruthless equity is all about mission. You've got to be ruthless about what matters and equally ruthless about what doesn't. But if you're not willing to commit to that, then let's not, don't, let's not call it mission and let's not talk about 100%. And let's just, here's the example I give. A new target opens up in your neighborhood and you pull into the parking lot, grand opening, and they got a big red banner going across. Welcome to the brand new target where we strive for 78% customer satisfaction, <laughs> right? What do you do? You probably turn around like, you know what? <laughs> like, we, we won't accept that. We won't accept Target talking about maybes and shoulds. But in the profession that creates all professions, we are afraid to put it all on the line. So I think because we fear failure. I think that leads us to two terms that you used in ruthless equity, and one was selectivity, and the other was cosmetic. So (laughs) I think you're talking about that right now. But can you fill us in a little bit on what do those two terms mean, and why are they so uh, important to include in your book? Absolutely. So selectivity is. And I don't know if you guys are going to have like a written transcript or anything, but I'll, I'll provide links to those videos. But selectivity is selective equity. And that's where we typically look out the window. We move from the mirror. We look out the window and we start talking about global issues that get lots of clicks and um, are provocative on a world stage, but don't affect Timmy, who's coming to school tomorrow. So selectivity is all rooted in. Uh, dismantle this, supremacy that, institutional this, which all might be legitimate issues. 
But what, what we typically do is we look the dirt on our port and start trying to solve world issues. And um, and that's what happens. So I can't solve world pollution, but I can make sure to throw this piece of paper out in the garbage can. All I'm asking schools to do is you can read all your anti-racist books you want. God bless you. But please look at some of your local practices. I can't tell you the number of schools I work with. Like, we just read the anti-race. We anti-race and anti-muslim. And got kids working below grade level all year long. And got the most provocative, fun, engaging instruction reserved for 10% of your population that you call gifted. That you got kids relegated to dumb groups. And when I say dumb groups, I'm not talking about flexible regrouping. I'm talking about the kids. They are, they're, gonna, they're stuck. Miss Nancy pulling them all year long. They're going to Nancy all year. Stuck. And so selectivity looks good, sounds good. You are all the noise about, I got to dismantle white supremacy. I got to dismantle blah, 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 blah. And none of it is affecting Timmy tomorrow. And cosmequity is cosmetic equity. And the biz- biggest example of that is all diversity libraries that are popping up in schools. I've been to schools where there are unopened boxes of thousands of books of authors of color with kids of color on the cover, which is a nice gesture if you couple it with equitable practice. But if none of your practices change and all you're doing is adding books, well, shoot, we can solve all this. Amazon can solve all this. What am I writing a book for? Yeah. If all it takes is to put some authors of color in the library, that's cosmetic equity. The co- right, the optics of equity. That's that's like doing the book study, but no changes are made. Yeah. The people don't people run from my stuff because I'm holding I'm holding the mirror up because I know where the power is. I'm not blaming teachers. It's just that we keep looking out in the community and looking for answers there. And this other thing that's going on with equity is that none of it, none of it is aspiration. None of it. None of it talks about what we want. It is all about what we don't want, what we want to dismantle, what we want to destroy. And whether you're talking about equity or anything else, when you beat people down with only what you don't want, they are going to say, hell with this and rebel. There are now states and districts that are scrubbing all all evidence of equity from their policies. I got my, I got a good friend in Wisconsin, his district, everything that says equity, they're racist, all of it. Because all they're hearing is, you're racist, you're biased, you're racist, you're biased, you're racist, you're biased. When I wanted to grow from equitable practice, see, once I explain what start with the crown means, which means you identify what's essential and then you work to grow every kid to it, if you having trouble doing that, because I, Nobody makes it simpler than I do. If you're having trouble doing that, then we could talk about you might have some underlying issues. <laughs> yeah. Let's and, start with the crown. I am all in on that. And Go Ken, ahead. that reminds me of, of a quote that high tide lifts all boats. That's kind of when you're talking, and that's exactly what it reminds me of. <laughs> so, so let me ask you this. You're a principal of a school building. You know that there's an equitable practice issue that's happening in your building. If you're wanting to turn your school around to meet the needs of all learners, regardless of label, regardless of background, doesn't matter. If you're that leader, what's your first step? Talk about the elephant in the room. 
first, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to establish our mission. And then I'm going to do what I do with my school, which is we were the worst performing school in the district, worst performing district in the greater Atlanta area. We had to have a visioning session. And I'm, we didn't develop a vision statement. We did a vision narrative. We did a day in the life at our school three years from today that started with what it's like when our parents park the car and get out of the car. What do they see? The grass is cut. It's manicured. Weeds aren't growing up through the cracks and swiping up their shins. They walk into the building. What's in the foyer? What does it feel like? They walk into the office and they're greeted as clients. I don't care if they come in in house coats, uh, bonnets, and curlers. I don't care if they come in splitting verbs and ready to cuss somebody out. They're going to be greeted like clients. And then we had what I call hood aspirations. We wanted every parent late, five minutes late for meetings. Because when you walk down the hall, the work in the halls was so compelling that you had to stop and read it. Right. And then our one of our last ones was we want a wait list. Right now we would at school. We would at school that you either somebody didn't like you and placed you there or you were brand new and had no choice. But we were the worst school. And I said, we want a wait list. And we want we want twenty percent of our parents lying about their residency to get into our school. Like that that's hood aspirations. Like that's when people that, that we took pride in that. We were like, Jerome, you, you know that's not your that's not your gas, that's your grandmama gas bill. You don't look at your grandmama. And we pull him back up and say, look, now, as long as he does what he needs to do, Matt can stay if he does what he needs to do. Now, if he cuts up, we don't have to call you. But that's what we wanted. So first we had to cast this vision. Because when you're in, when you're in it, when you're sitting in the mess, it's hard to see past your circumstances, right? So your logical eye, it's hard to talk about how we're going to be great. So we had to tap into that creative side, that heart side. Um, we did that. And then the next step is we got to start with the crown, not with the kid. Start with the crown. Start with essentials. When I learned about PLCs, man, and I hardly use the term because I know people like a, like a wall goes up in front of people's eyes. But when we learned, I learned to start with the crown. It was over. It was over. It freed me. It freed me of trying to the angst of trying to figure out what Jeannie's capable of, what Matt's capable of. That's not my business. My business is to get you here and beyond. So we're going to outgrow this crown and beyond. We started with the crown, and then I clarified what that process looked like on TV. And then you got you to monitor and support. Rick, Rick DeCore used to tell us, teachers don't need to be supervised, they need to be supported. But part of the support is to make sure the work's going on. And so the way I did that was instead of supervising them, you see what I did there? I was supervising that's with Yeah. Instead of supervising them, I became the hunter gatherer. So we meet, all I cared about was what's essential? Did they master it? What's essential is the starting line? Did they master it to finish line? How many kids we get across the finish line? How close are we to 100%? Who's not there yet? And what do you need me to go get so you can get them there? I can't do excuses, but I will move hell and high water to get what you need to get them there. But you cannot be afraid to have those conversations. And too many leaders let air in the room. Well, well they are poor. They start mitigating. Yeah. I made no, you cannot let an ounce of, you can't let an ounce of air escape from there. And too many leaders, I had a leader tell me today, Ken, how do I do this without overwhelming our already overwhelmed teachers? 
I said, well, you're dead in the water, brother. I said, if your teachers are making Yeti bottles and there's a pinprick hole in the pool, and so there's a leak, a slow leak, and customers say, hey, uh, my Yeti bottles got slow leaks in them. Can you imagine yourself saying, well, I could come up with a strategy, but how do I do that without overwhelming us? <laughs> Working so hard making the Yetis. I can't imagine. You know what that is? That's participation trophies, and that's what subgroups have become. We just work our tails off, bring our hand, the data falls out the same, and we just go, you're amazing and amazing because you work at this subgroup. <laughs> we want to be liked. Leaders want to be liked bruh, too much. I said, bruh, can you imagine telling your customer base, our folks work so hard. It works so hard. You're talking about holes in the bottom of it. <laughs> you know, that's in there like, I don't give a damn about how I want a, I want a bottle that don't leak. <laughs> right? When we when we come in with that, how do I do this without overwhelming? That's one, that's teaching treating teachers like the low group. You're cobrecitoing them. So how do you expect them to turn around and have a high expectation for anyone else? If you're telling me that You've been doing this and it's not working. I got this that will work. You're already working hard. You're just going to switch a couple things up. But you scared to do it because they overwhelmed? That's that's a form of low expectations that is so pervasive in our work. It drives me crazy. Yeah. Or Absolutely. when I hear, Ken, I don't know if our teachers are ready to hear that message. you basically telling me they're not ready for rigor. So then they, when they turn around and tell the kids... When they show you the kids aren't ready for rigor, then don't complain. A really don't wise complain. a really wise leader, Tom Maney, my former superintendent, said to me, We have to as leaders articulate what's important, protect what's important, and you said that, Ken, and promote what's important. And that's all. Yeah, articulate, protect, and promote. And that's you know, it has stuck with me forever. Absolutely. Um, it's exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Tom is a monster. I know he's got a lot of energy, but you know, it's not even about the type of leader you are. Tom's not jumping up on tables and dancing and stuff like that. He is just, uh, he is just absolutely convicted. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. You, you get, who's the cat with the school here? Um, the, the, the school in Atlanta. I'm going to forget his name. Dancing up on tables, stuff like that. Ron Clark. Ron oh, Clark, Ron right? Clark. Ron yeah. Clark is convicted too, but Ron Clark doing somersaults off the back of tables and stuff. <laughs> I'm probably somewhere in the middle. And you get people like Tom, it's just like you just see in his eyes. Just yeah. Yeah. completely convicted and unwavering. Oh, yeah. And he's always talking about the talent in the room. It's never about the kids. It's all about we have the talent to do this. Yeah. We need so much more of that because we're getting way too much messaging that has us doing subtractive math as soon as we see the kids. And it's it's heartbreaking because it's way too much time. So, Ken. Oh, on these rants, I'm sorry. No, we love your rants. Yeah, and we go on. We, we, yeah, we might have to do a second episode, I'm telling you, because there's Man, a lot more to out. talk about. But I, I think we're going to wrap this up. I think we heard you. I heard you loud and clear. You know, we have to cast the vision, and then we have to start with the crumb. Um, 
good. And if we can do those two things, um, I really think we have a chance at changing outcomes for kids. There's no question. Uh, yeah. There's so no we appreciate everything you said and the fact that you took some time to chat with us about this. Um, we appreciate you so much, Ken. Can't wait to hear uh, what's going to happen with this book you've been talking about today. Um, that's coming out next. Um, honor, tell us, honor, tell us one more you. time, what should we be looking for in this new book? Oh, man. Ultimately, it's uh, how we can change the legacy of these persistently underperforming subgroups. All right. Like, yeah, I'm, well, I'm about to figure that out because it's, it's, it's ridiculous that a country like ours with the, the, the brains and the talent that we've got these quote-unquote groups underperforming and it's gotten to a point where now they're the ones that are damaged, different, and dumb. It's no longer a, it's no longer a real concern. We notice it. But since we know this happens everywhere, it's got to be them. It can't be us. It's got to be them. Well, we need this book, and I think it'll be a perfect partner with Ruthless Equity. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, thank you. And one more plug. If you are a school leader, if you are a teacher, if you're a district leader, go buy Ruthless Equity. I promise you it is a game changer. You will take plenty of ideas back to your school, to your district, that are going to help all students learn. Thank you, thank you. you can find it on Amazon, and in about three weeks, I'm going to release my nine-module Ruthless Equity video book study. Principals be able to plug and play, no prior prep. You got to do two things, hit play and hit pause. I'm going to walk you right through that book with your staff. Wow. Ken, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an thank honor you. for us to talk to you. Wish you the very best, and we hope to have you back here very soon. Thank you so much. Congratulations on the new podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Today's Practitioner Perspective brought to you by the letter P. The letter P, Matt? Well, I mean, it, it is an alliteration. Uh, okay. It's a stretch, but let's get started. What an incredible interview with Ken Williams, Jeannie. That was just outstanding. And as you said, he has a way of putting things in a way that just everybody can relate to. And his book is written the exact same way. One of the goals of our podcast, though, is we want to talk to folks that are writing books and, and, and are working with schools across the country. But more importantly, we want to talk to folks that are actually doing the work in the trenches on a daily basis. I could not be more excited to have somebody that is doing this work every single day, and that is Dr. Lavise Haney. He is the Director of Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire, Illinois. Dr. Haney, we have heard so much about you. We're excited to have you on our podcast. And for just a second, if you don't mind, share just a little bit of your background with our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you, Matt. And uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. It's, it's funny, a colleague of mine, Dr. Ted Gergen, he's the Director of Student Activities here at Stevenson. He literally just recommended this book to me. He's like, dude, you got to read this book, Ruthless Equity. And the title immediately caught me. So I'm like, cool. And so he, he actually told me he was reading it on the plane, left it on the plane and bought another one. 
just as a testament to how much this book resonated with him. So when Gene reached out to me about this opportunity to uh, follow this guy, who's just absolutely amazing, and Ken Williams, of course, I had to buy the book and read it, but it was so readable. I was done with it in two days, right? I highlighted like everything. Like I highlighted so much. It's more highlights than non-highlighted parts. So uh, it was just so much about the book that was uh, that resonated with me. But to your to your question, a little bit about me, uh, similar to Ken, my background is in education. I was a teacher, a dean of students, an assistant principal and principal at both the elementary and secondary levels before my current role here at Stevenson High School. Uh, my, my education path uh, really began with my own personal education. Uh, I began my schooling in the public school system where I grew up in Chicago. And then in the fifth grade, my mom transferred me to Catholic school. And for those who, who have experience in Catholic schools, like those people are rough, man. Like, and they have like King Kong high expectations. And so those expectations will follow me throughout high school. I went to Weber High School, another Catholic high school in Chicago. And so my mission as I went into education was to instill those same high expectations in the kids that I had the good fortune to, uh, to teach. And as a school leader, to make sure that every adult in front of kids had the highest of expectations for them. And so that basically summarizes my work here at Stevenson, right? Like the, in the mission of my department, which is to ensure a deep sense of inclusion, belonging, and dignity for all of our students and all of our community. That's outstanding. And we couldn't be more honored that you were on our first episode, our very first podcast uh, today. And what a great topic when we think about equity. Like you, Jeannie and I spent many, many days talking very specifically about what we were reading in Ruthless Equity, lots of highlighting, uh, lots of notes. And so it looks more like a workbook than it does uh, a cover to cover book. But when you think about that book, I, wa I want to ask you this, what resonated so much with you? If you could just iron it down to like a few things that you feel like you can take away and put into practice in your school district. Oh, my gosh. Re remember, I highlighted the entire book. So, I mean, where do I start? I'm, well, actually, from listening to the, to uh, Ken just speak, and of course, he just laid a bunch more uh, knowledge on us. Uh, I want to start with some of the content he shared with us. But uh, and by the way, I was scanning the QR codes as I was reading also. So here I am reading and then I'm watching and then I had to stop the process a million times. So I probably would have finished in one day if it weren't for all that processing. But anyway, um, something that really resonated with me, he talked about this tendency that we have as educators to not teach kids, but to teach subgroups. And then he went on to talk about like this, this unconscious sort of expectation that we may not have with our kids. You know, in that he also talked about this tendency uh, to to, uh, uh, in essence, which which actually let me backtrack a little bit, because this I think this is a real problem in schools. When you think about this, this this piece around low expectations, uh, my, my colleague, actually, uh, we laugh about this. She reminded me of this literally the other week. Um, 
Her name is Sarah Bowen. She 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 quoted our friend, the former president, George Bush, who, who said he was given a speech on uh, education policy while he was the governor in uh, Texas. And he said, he said, now some say it's unfair to hold disadvantaged children. And of course, that's deficit language we want to move away from. Right. So he said it was unfair to um, to when it when it comes to disadvantaged children, it's unfair to hold those children are rigorous standards. Well, he said it's discrimination to require anything less. The soft bigotry of low expectations. Like, wow. The soft bigotry of low expectations. I, th- I just think that that's so powerful, but yet silent, right? It's, it's Ken Williams, he, he called it like uh, a carbon monoxide, right? It's, 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 it's clear, it's we can't see it, but yet it's, it, it can envelop you. And that cycle continues when we create subgroups, right? And Ken also said that as soon as we create subgroups, kids are doomed because it sends a message that our tier one instruction is okay, right? Everything's all right. We're doing everything we're supposed to do. We just got to fix these doggone kids, right? And let's face it, as a school leader and a, and a former teacher, I've been in the teacher's lounge. I've been a part of those conversations, right? Like I've been a part of those rants and complaint sessions where if only the kids would work harder, if only the parents cared more, if only the parents valued education. So we we project all of the, 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 the current state of affairs of our kids and make it all their fault. And we don't look at our own practices and, and we don't adjust and adapt our instruction. And, and as long as we see the kids as the people that need to be fixed, the cycle will continue. I mean, we create intervention after intervention. And these interventions are designed to fix the problem, right? Instead of what Ken asked us to do, and that's looking in the mirror instead of through the, through the glass. And so I, I think that to me, that's the biggest problem. But the challenge is because that's a mindset issue, Oh, my God. And it was so funny how he talked about uh, how all of us are like the masters of the mindset work. Right. That Carol Dweck has done with us. But yet we still go back and we still go back to our 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 playbook, which is fix the kid, fix the kid intervention after intervention. And then when when the kids don't move, then we say, see, we tried everything we could when, in fact, you know, if only we would backtrack and look in a mirror and stop looking at everything through a deficit lens, but instead use uh, student strengths in order to design instructional experiences for them, they would be more successful that way. I just have to jump in for a second and say, I think I highlighted the whole book with you, Louise. I did the same thing. And everything that you just pointed out are the things that resonated for me too as a practitioner in a district right now. Um, I keep thinking about how we need to practice equity in our practice, right? And not just talk about it. So I'm just curious in your work, um, I'm sure you have your work cut out for you um, in that regard, just how you plan to shift from let's talk about equity to let's do something about it yeah it's easy to um 
to do this thing I call problem admiring, right? Like, you know, we pontificate about it. We talk about it. We, we book club about it, you know, and it's useful, is needed, particularly when there's a knowledge gap that we have. And, and by the way, this, this problem, it plagues all of us. It, it's, it's, it doesn't matter our gender. It doesn't matter our race. You know, we have to address the expectations problem. We have to address the problem of our practice. And we have to flip it from interventions for kids to how do we shift our practice in order to best need, uh, to best support the needs of our kids. I love how Ken, and by the way, you know how he makes us all feel so dumb by making it seem so simple. But it's not that simple, but yet the way he the way he breaks it down, like you remember uh, the line when he talked about uh, Target, right? He said, Target, where we, uh, what did he say? Where we um, provide excellent customer service for 70% of our, <laughs> of our people, right? Like that would, that would sound crazy. Well, we celebrate when we move the vast majority of our kids, but not all of our kids, right? You know, and so part of moving from uh, theory to practice is thinking about the kids as individuals and each kid needing something different in order to be successful, you know? And so how do we look at our practice so that we're differentiating enough so that our kids get exactly what they need, right? And he also talked about that relationship piece. And I think that piece is touchy too, right? Because you'll be hard pressed to find anyone who believes that they don't have good relationships with kids. But what we're challenging our adults to do is think about the difference between being polite and having really in-depth, true relationships with kids. Do kids see you as someone who sees the potential in them, right? And all of us have that somebody, and Ken talked about that, and it just, you know, it, ch it sends chills down my spine because I think about all of those people who had some uh, influence on who I became, who, who stepped down, and when I didn't believe in myself, you know, gave me the, the push and, the, and the, the oomph that I needed in order to, you know, to uh, complete something that I didn't think I could complete. Well, how do you... Package, package that in a PD. It's hard, right? Uh, but that's part of the work. We have to dig deeper with kids and we have to hold them to the highest standards. We have to be the ones to have the relationship with them to say, hey, you're not trying hard enough on this. Or, hey, did you try, you know, did you try it this way? Or, hey, what do you think is the, the support you need in order to you know, to best uh, jump this hurdle. You know what I mean? Like, uh, so it's, 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 it's so much mindset work that we just have to move away from some of the prescriptive stuff that we think is the way to quote unquote, fix our kids. And Dr. Haney, you, you hit on some really great points there. One of the things you said is we have to hold all students to a high expectation. Ken really, he, he talks about this a lot, but Really, he says that that we we we've got to boost kids up to wear the crown, right? Rather than bringing the crown down to them. And so, I think a lot of times in schools, what happens is we say we give students what they need, and unfortunately, that gets somewhat distorted to lowering the bar for certain groups of students, particularly those students that we've placed 
labels on, right? So in your experience, kind of what have you seen related to that? And what would be your goal in your district now to try to move away from that practice? Oh, my God. What I mean, Ken hit the nail on the head when when he talked about like, and, and of course, he made these funny uh, uh, impressions, which <laughs> which had me cracking up. So, you know, Ken pointed out that is 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 sort of easiest easy for us to feel sorry for kids, you know, and and with that, then we want to take care of them, right? And so our intentions are good when we sort of dumb down our expectations for kids, and we want to we want kids to feel good about themselves. And so we give them things that they can complete and, and to help build their confidence. And it's it's okay to differentiate, but I, I just love that 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 the the start with the crown. Like here's where we expect you to be. We expect you to meet this standard. And so how do we provide the right scaffolds? And I think that's where the challenge is, right? That's where that's some of the the skill that we need to build capacity in is how do we, uh, in essence, give the right scaffold to kids who they all need different things, right? And so what's the right scaffold to help kids move towards that crown and always keeping that expectation at the forefront of our of our work with our young people, right? Continuing to expect the excellence and to expect the success and to keep working and pushing to help them meet that. You know, um, but again, and, and I've seen it in my practice, and quite frankly, I've been guilty of it. You know, we want our kids to feel good and feel good about school and, and be successful. And, 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 and an unintended consequence is we've lowered the bar for kids. And so he said, and I, I wrote this down to make sure that I said this. He said, there's, there's no way to achieve equity if, if kids are taught below grade level. But if you can imagine how many of our kids are consistently taught under grade level, and, and that's a real problem. And as long as we teach kids under grade level, as long as we hold them to lower standards, they're going to meet our expectations, right? You, you couldn't have said it any better. And, and, you know, I think a lot of times when we hear the word equity, we think that doesn't, that doesn't really involve us. Certain populations of folks don't really think that that involves us, but the reality is Equity really involves every single student in our classroom because we use labels left and right, whether those are the labels that the state gives us for state testing or whether that's the labels that we create by saying this is my high group, my middle group or my low group. You, you couldn't be more spot on with that. Dr. Haney, we, we want to thank you for joining us today with with your analysis of ruthless equity, but also your perspective as a practitioner in the field. We appreciate you, and we really hope that you will come back and join us again for a future episode. Thank you so much, and we wish you absolutely the best. Thank you, Matt. I really, really enjoyed our talk, and uh, I look forward to Ken's next book he talked about also. We'll bring you back on when that comes out for sure. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Wow, what an incredible first episode of Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. Today, we had the distinct honor of hosting Ken Williams, the author of the brand new best-selling book, Ruthless Equity. He is an incredible personality, an incredible educator. We were very fortunate to have him today. Also, Dr. LaVise Haney of Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire, Illinois, a practitioner in the field that took some of those theoretical ideas and talked about them 
and practice. We hope that you were able to take something away from our conversations with both of those gentlemen today that you can take back to your school and district and put into practice to benefit all students achieving at high levels. We hope that you will join us again. We hope to have our next episode out in just about one month. Until then, thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to this edition of Real Talk with Jeannie and Matt. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to like and subscribe to us on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode when it drops. Until next time, stay focused, stay vigilant, but most importantly, keep it real.